invite you now to open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12 as we continue uh, looking at uh, this wonderful letter of encouragement, Hebrews chapter 12. Last week, if you remember, we jumped ahead because the text, uh, verses 18 through 24, was uh, very appropriate for celebrating the the Lord's Supper. And I'm glad that we did jump ahead because I think the text that we have this morning, verses 12 through 17, needs to be understood in that uh, context, sort of situated between these great messages of grace, as we'll see. And so let's uh, give our attention. Uh, If you just remember in chapter 12, it begins by calling us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's verse 1. And we do that by looking to Jesus. And that's been the theme throughout the letter. Uh, Also, in in verses 3 and following, we were uh, reminded that uh, there is going to be heartaches and trials in this life and that those are not accidents or obstacles or even just circumstances. Uh, that our life is not controlled by consequences, but by providences. We have a heavenly Father who's treating us like sons and daughters as he's preparing us for our eternal home. And then uh, having reminded us of these uh, great truths of God's grace, uh, we come now to verse 12. Let's give our attention to God's word. We'll read verse 12 through 17. Therefore... Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we uh, confess, as we just heard this morning, that this is the very word of God, that you are speaking to us. Uh, that the Spirit can now take this word and apply it and open our eyes and hearts to receive it. And so we ask, God, you would do just that, that we would hear the voice of our Savior, our shepherd, and that we would happily follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message this morning is uh, Walking in the Fields of Grace. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye, it's summertime, it's vacation time, and I'd like you to picture in your mind's eye... uh, a, a small little mountain village, uh, a village maybe somewhere in Switzerland, and you've got the uh, majestic uh, mountain range of the Alps surrounding it. Uh, and as you think about it and see in your mind's eye that little village, you'll recognize that the beauty of that village, uh, the beauty of the mountains beca- has become a part and parcel of the village. If you would just remove the mountains from the scene, the village would still be the same, but much of the beauty would be gone. Um, that village is being impacted in every way by the reality of the mountain. So the air that you breathe in that little village is scented with the pine and the rocks of the mountains. Uh, the water that you drink is water that flows to you out of the mountains. Uh, you, you don't really understand that village or life there with, without reference 
to the majestic mountains that surround it. And I say that because the, the same is true for the Christian life. Uh, we're going to talk about holiness today. And holiness is a word that um, causes some of us maybe to just shrink back. It, it's a word that sounds a, a little legal, a little daunting, maybe hard. But what, what, I was, what I want us to see this morning is that holiness is just what life in the mountains of grace looks like. Holiness is what happens to you and to me when we live in view of the beauty of God, uh, when we breathe the air of His truth, uh, when we drink the water of His grace, the beauty of a Christian is really nothing less than their reflected and imparted holiness, beauty of the holiness of God himself. And so holiness, uh, the writer here is striving to help us to see that this, the holiness of um, the Christian life is a holiness that is received from and part and parcel of the, where we live in the grace of God. And so if you remember, and I'm not going to give a review of the whole book, but the, the writer here has been striving to show us the grace uh, of God. He's been striving to show these struggling Christians um, the reality of Jesus as a superior high priest. He's been striving to show them the, the, the wonder of a superior sacrifice that actually washes away all of your sin. He's been striving to show them the confidence that they can have because of Jesus Christ, that they can with boldness uh, enter into the most holy places. And with boldness, draw near to God. When everything in the Old Testament said, stay away, Mount Sinai specifically said, stay away, don't come close, um, we see how the New Testament and Jesus Christ and Mount Zion gathers us and draws us near. So he's been talking about the grace of God and the love of a heavenly Father who inter, uh, engages in our life. He doesn't leave us alone. But he intersects with your life and ordains every event in your life, even the heartbreaking events, because he's training you as, and treating you as sons. And because you see that's true, then when the writer talks about holiness, there's no browbeating, there's no shaming. Um, he's, 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 he's saying to the people, look at all the grace that surrounds you. Look at where you live. Look at what God has accomplished for you. Remember, you, you've come to Mount Zion, joy and grace and angels and festal gathering. And that's where we now live in holiness. Uh, as we think about the, re the realities of grace that surround us and the eternal home that awaits us, and, and the writer says, now let's then run with endurance this race. Well, how do we do that? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. What does it look like to run this race, to walk in the fields of grace. I just have two main points as we try to uh, just follow the, readers, the writer's um, intent here. Notice in verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. There needs to be, first of all, we walk this race, we run this race with an inner resolve. The word therefore at the beginning of that sentence matters. It's not there just as a throwaway word. The writer is saying, if gospel realities are true, then we need to embrace them 
as true. If gospel realities are true, then we need to embrace them as true. If everything that he's told us about the work of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of his sacrifice and the, and the engagement of God the Father in your life to lead you to a, an actual heavenly city, a better country, if those things are really true, buck up. That's what he's saying. Strengthen your weak knees. Lift up your drooping hands. It's good for the heart to be strengthened with grace, chapter 13, verse 9. You see, he's just calling us to follow the example of the psalmist in Psalm 42, where the, where the psalmist there um, reflects on how downcast he is, but then instead of just listening to himself, he talks to himself. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disquieted within me? And uh, we could answer that, right? We ask ourselves the same questions and we say, well, because of the circumstances of my life, because of the illness that I'm experiencing, because of the relationship that I'm in, because of the hard, devastating, heartbreaking things that happen all around me and to me. But the writer in Psalm 42 says to himself, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. And that doesn't make all the, the, the mess go away and it doesn't make all the pain disappear. But it will answer the disquiet and the despair. It will, it will lift the drooping hands. It will strengthen the weak knees. It will create, you see, an inner resolve. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though the, the leaf withers and the flowers fade and there's no fruit in the vine, I will yet praise him. You see, that's, that's what hope in God does. If what God has said is true, if the gospel is true, if Jesus Christ is all that he is for sinners like you and me, well, then, then let's, let's believe it. You see, this inner resolve, isn't, it, it's, it's not a call to try harder to be a good Christian and to do better in your, in your Christian life. It's a call to believe. This inner resolve to take hold of these truths and embrace them and then rely on them. Remember, the Christian life is defined by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith. Every story you read there about uh, these saints of old, weak all of them, many of them have fallen into gross sin, and yet by faith they endure. By faith they lay hold of what is unseen with a conviction and a confidence. And so that's the, that's the call here. This inner resolve is a call to believe. But, but, but it's critical to, to ask yourself, do I really believe these things? There are many people who are in church and they have sort of an intellectual assent to doctrinal truth, to biblical truth. Yes, I believe that. And yet, uh, those things that are professed as true right, have failed to impact. In fact, don't you, don't, wouldn't you say that the, the process of sanctification is this process of continually taking things that we intellectually have assented to and now bringing them into the reality of our life so that we actually stand on them and they're actually functioning as our truth. 
That God is sovereign now, not just as an idea, but God is sovereign right now in this, in the middle of this circumstance. That God is good, not as an idea, but God is good right now in this heartbreaking trial. Strengthen drooping weak knees and, and lift up drooping hands. And friends, that inner resolve is critical. Without that inner resolve, if that movement isn't happening, Faith, you see, isn't something that God does for you. He gives it to you, but you need to exercise it. I need to exercise it. And without that inner resolve to lay hold of these truths and actually stand there and take them and claim them for ourselves, we're not going to make progress in the things of God. We we will um, continue to drift along then in our life, driven by our fears and our needs, our wants, our selfishness, our pride. Well, that's, that's not the life the Holy Spirit is seeking to lead us in. It's not the life Jesus Christ died to give you and, and, and me. The Spirit is eager to lead us along straight paths of grace. And, um, and how do we do that then? How do we walk on those straight paths? Well, the answer is found in verse 14. Well, the writer um, says to us, a strive for peace with everyone. There's intentional striving that we're called to. Intentional striving. For peace and for holiness. And not just our holiness, but we strive for the holiness of the body as a whole and for our brothers and sisters in Christ who who are walking with us. Let's just begin with peace. Strive for peace with everyone. One of the clearest signs, one of the the clearest evidences of a life that is lacking grace in a functioning way is a life that is characterized by contention and dissension, and discord, and strife, and jealousy. There's just confusion, and constant motion, and chaos. If you read the book of Proverbs, you'll see that strife is associated with fools, people who are just not aware of the wisdom of God. Um, Strife is associated with scoffers, People who mock, either vocally or internally, mock the commands of God to confession and humility and forgiveness and grace. And with liars, people who just don't tell the truth. So Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. 20 verse 3, it's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Those are just two. You could pick out many more in the book of Proverbs. Every fool will be quarreling. And so you see, conversely, a life that is filled with grace, that grace that is functioning, is going to be a life that strives for peace and has evidences of peace. Isn't it true that, that a a Christian, one of the evidences of a Christian is this instinctive desire for peace. Not just a desire to get along. It's not just, you know, people who are averse to conflict. You don't need the Holy Spirit for that. But if the Holy Spirit is within you, uh, one of the evidences is going to be love, joy, and peace. And patience. You see, and kindness. That, that serves peace. If the spirit is within you, there's a hatred of discord and disunity and strife and gossip and lies and abuse and quarreling. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes do it. 
and are guilty of these things. But when we do, you see, we hate it within us and we repent of it. We turn from it. We can't live at peace with strife. God is a God of peace. Those who belong to God are going to hunger for peace. To strive for peace with everyone means, that word strive is a strong word, means that there are things that we actually need to do. It might mean that uh, you have a deep sin pattern in your life where you just sort of cause ripples and, and strife and discord as you go through life. And there's gossip and slander and strife that has to be repented of. There's things that we need to do. It might mean you have someone that you need to apologize to or you need to confess sin to, that you've not loved them well. It might be someone you need to forgive, a grudge that you have to lay down. Striving for peace doesn't happen. You just go to bed at night. Striving for peace is is actively engaging the reality of sin that we commit and that others commit. But above everything, striving for peace means doing those things in the context of grace. Only grace can produce peace. Only grace can give us the humility to acknowledge our own sin. Only grace can give us the ability to forgive others their sin. Only grace can create a genuinely kind, gracious, peaceful heart. And we're to strive for that. Matthew Henry, a great old commentator, says, Peace is such a precious thing, I would trade anything for it except for truth. And that's an important thing to remember. The peace that that, that the writer is asking and calling us to, commanding us to, is not a go-along to get-along. It's not peace that makes peace with error, with untruth, with unrepentant sin, as we'll see in a moment. It's a peace that strives for holiness, for the things that please God. So the writer says, strive for peace and the holiness with which no one uh, will see the Lord. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so we're going to talk about holiness. Now again, remember the writer is not trying to lay some impossible standard down on your life to just weigh you down. He's writing a letter to encourage people who are already weighed down with the difficulties and trials they're going through. But what he reminds them, you see, is that there is a striving for a principle of holiness that is an essential, necessary, non-negotiable part of being a Christian. If you live in the mountains of grace, if you're going to receive um, that grace, it's going to look like this principle of holiness. The grace of God as it's received is going to bear fruit. It's going to create in you a hunger for holiness. It can't help but create a hunger for holiness. It's God's grace. It's from him. It has his character about it. And so the grace of God, you see, that convicts you of your sin is going to at the same time move you to hate it, to take up the battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. I was talking with an old-time friend this past week who's, um, you know, um, just reflecting. It doesn't seem the church is really aware of the fact that the world is not a friend of grace. We're very comfortable. We're not really aware of the antithesis. We'll hope to talk about more uh, on that next week when we get down to talking about these kingdoms. 
But you see, the, the, the spirit within you is going to make you <coughs> hunger for holiness. And if that hunger if, is not in you, and if it does not move you to fight against your sin and to fight the, the, the world and the flesh and the devil, if, if it doesn't plant in you a longing for righteousness, then friend, you are not yet a child of God. You can't be a child of God and not have a hunger for holiness, not as an ongoing standard of your life. Now, we all have moments where we're spiritually dead and ignorant, but not as the ongoing standard. When the Spirit is present, when the grace is real, this is going to be the fruit of it. J.C. Riley, uh, an Anglican bishop in the Church of England um, in the 1800s, so he's looking at a culture where there's so much nominal Christianity. People who say they're Christians, they go to church, and yet it really doesn't have much of an impact at all. He writes this, I fear for many professing Christians because I see no sign of fighting in them, much less victory. They never strike one stroke on the side of Christ. They are at peace with his enemies. They have no quarrel with sin. Friend, do you have a quarrel with sin? A knockdown, drag out to the mat battle with your sin? J.C. Rowell says, if that's not there, he says, this, this is not Christianity. And, he, and the writer here of the letter, this encouraging letter, tells the people if you don't have that principle of holiness, uh, you will not see God. Strive for the holiness without which. No one will see God. And that, that warning is repeated throughout the New Testament. Do not be deceived, brothers. These people, and Paul will list various people, defining sins, unrepented sins, they will not, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> Excuse me, J.C. Rowlegan. I fear that it is sometimes forgotten that God is married together, justification and sanctification. The one is never found without the other. Tell me not of your justification unless you have some marks of sanctification. Boast not of Christ's work for you unless you can show us the Spirit's work in you. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's a call just to examine our life. You see, that it's not saying we're saved by a grace alone and by our works. We're just saying that the grace that saves us is a, is a grace that's going to have an impact. It's going to change the way you think about sin, and, and uh, it's, it's going to drive you to battle for holiness. And so this, this command just calls us to examine ourselves. Have you made peace with your sin? Is there a quarrel that you have you just need to take up because of the grace of God to you. There are areas in your life where you're just living foolishly and you know it's not in keeping with who you are in Christ. But there, it's just been there. It's, it's comfortable. You're used to it. Uh, it's, it's a habit that's been long ingrained and you've made peace with it and, and you can't be at peace with it. Very practical things. Things that you listen to and watch. Uh, things that you participate in. 
Uh, on the, on the, the other side, what positive actions would this call you? I mean, what, what, what's, what is striving for holiness going to look like in your life um, in, in terms of your engagement in the public worship of God and the means of grace and in Bible studies and small groups and, and accountability groups and, uh, and your personal devotions? What, what is, on the positive, what, what are you going to put into your life and, and just keep fighting for because the spirit within you is just driving you to be more and more like Christ. And we do this not just for ourselves, but for each other. Verse 15, he moves immediately. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That means that we have a communal responsibility. We're not a bunch of uh, individuals who just gather together because we have common interests. We actually are a body, and we are res- we're responsible. We actually are our brother's keeper and our sister's helper. One of, the, one of the best blessings God gives you as a child, as one of his children, is the blessing of siblings who love Jesus and love you enough um, to rebuke or admonish or encourage in whatever way is required as you walk your Christian life. What a wonderful thing to have loving brothers and sisters to watch out for us. And, and it's, it's important task because the stakes are high. It's a sobering concern he raises here. See to it that no one fails to to obtain the grace of God. Do you realize that is the greatest tragedy a human person could experience? The greatest tragedy a person can experience is to be in the church and miss the grace of God. Fail to obtain the grace of God. And yet Jesus says it will happen to many. People who were in the church and professed orthodoxy and people who maybe were even serious about morality and yet somehow they, they failed to obtain the grace of God. There will be inhabitants in hell, Jesus says who had the grace of God displayed in, in, in word and sacrament and in, in, in loving kindness and deeds. Uh, they, they were, in a sense, in the village. The, the, the grace of God was manifest. They just never, they never took it in. They professed to believe the truths of it. They walked with people who actually did. But they didn't. They missed it. I just think that's a, a devastating thought. And our responsibility, you see, to one another is to see that we, we are serious about helping each other obtain grace. We're serious about helping each other obtain grace. One of the ways we do that is that we, we watch out for roots of bitterness. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. Uh, contrary to sort of popular thought, this is not a verse about uh, the danger of, of having a bitter heart. It's not what it's about. Um, he's not talking about um, a specific sin called bitterness and the, and, and the effects of that. There, there is such a sin, and it does have effects. This verse isn't about that. The root of bitterness is a sinful person who's allowed to roam freely and unrepentantly in the garden of God, thus leading others into sin and producing bitter fruits. 
And the reason we can say that with confidence is because the writer here is, is certainly quoting from or referencing Deuteronomy 29. That's in your outline. If you want to turn in your Bible, you can do that as well. Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 19. Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 19, where it talks about a person who's planted with God's people and yet a person who is bearing bitter fruit. Beware, verse 18, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and dry alike. So a person who is walking in unrepentant sin, in the stubbornness of their heart, and yet if you try to confront them, says, a God forgives, my God doesn't judge, my God wouldn't condemn, I believe in grace, I'm safe. The writer says, and Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, beware, because that is a root that's going to bear poisonous fruit. You see, there, there, Jesus tells us there's always going to be a combination of weeds in, and wheat, right? Um, so you're going to have a garden, a field of God, and the field of the church is always going to have true believers and people who profess to believe but aren't true. And the reason is we, we can't judge each other's hearts. Only God knows. You're, you're going to have wheat and tares, wheat and weeds, always in the church. But what we need to be watching for is this bitter root, the root that bears bad fruit, that, that can infect the whole garden, the person that, that walks in unrepentant sin and, and assures you they will be safe even though they walk in the stubbornness of their own heart. That's specifically what it's saying. And this is one reason, friends, why we do church discipline. We do church discipline uh, partly because our Father loves us enough to discipline us. And it's, a, and it's an identifying mark of membership and sonship but we do church discipline because, you see, we, it, there's a desire to protect the body. If a, if a professing member is allowed to roam freely and unrepentantly in the stubbornness of their own heart, rather than in humble obedience to the Word of God, then that root needs to be identified and either brought to repentance or removed. This is Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the church there in Corinth, a city that was known for its sexual immorality, was used to all sorts of crazy things, allows a man in the congregation who is living with his father's wife. And that's normal for Corinth. Well, it's not normal for the city of the living God. And Paul rebukes them for their pride in thinking that it was okay. You see that in those ways, the, the name of Christ is defiled and others are tempted to sin. The writer goes on to say, verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. These are really just straight, straight home calling this congregation and being very specific about what it means to pursue holiness. 
Sexual immorality is routinely listed in the Bible sort of as the list of uh, sins which uh, will bar a person, unrepented of, from heaven. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's not the only sin, or you might even say the worst, but, but it, it leads the list oftentimes. And again, it's, the writer here isn't saying that, I mean, let's just define sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, of course, is anything that goes contrary to the law of God. The sexual immorality that will bar you is the unrepented sexual immorality, right? This is not, this is not a, about a person who is battling sexual sin. This is about a person who is not battling sexual sin. The person who's made peace with it. The person who says, I will be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. But notice the writer doesn't really stop to talk much about sexual morality. He goes right to Esau. And Esau, as far as we know, this is not a... He doesn't reference sexual immorality in Esau's life. The, the, the ultimate point he's making isn't um, about sexual immorality. The ultimate point he's making is trading things that are present and tangible and pleasurable here and now, trading uh, eternity to have this, trading what is future and unseen. So Esau, remember, um, he's the firstborn, and, and as the firstborn son of Isaac, all the, the, the honor and the prestige and the, the inheritance belongs to him. He just needs to wait for it. But he didn't want to wait for it. He was hungry, and he came home, and there was a stew brewing, and, and Jacob, his brother, says, tell you what, I'll give you the stew if you give me the birthright. And Esau, in the stupidity of that moment, in the need, and the, the, the driving craving of that moment, decided that's a good deal. And so he traded away his birthright, what's future, what's unseen, to have what's immediate, what's tangible, and what's fleeting. And afterwards, of course, he's filled with remorse. He sees what he's done. He goes to his father Isaac and begs his father to change his mind. That's what it means when he sought repentance. He tried to get Isaac to change his mind, and Isaac says, it's done. The blessing has been given. So the writer is just he wants us to, <laughs> to see, you see, uh, what's at stake here? God's children are called to live by things that are un- uh, for things that are unseen. If, if, if you try to make sense of your Christian life just by how things are going for you, it'll make no sense. It only makes sense if there is a heavenly city, if there's a better country, and if that's where you're going because of the grace of God to you. And so the writers just remind us, friends, this is, this is where we live. We live surrounded by mountains of grace. And in, the, in, in those mountains of grace, we're called to walk in a certain way. For if you are an unconverted person here this morning, this, I hope you hear the Spirit pleading with you to, to confess your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ and to commit yourself to following Him. That's the call. And it goes out to all alike. If you come and you, re, you confess your sin and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the invitation goes out, you shall be saved and you will be a member, a citizen of this heavenly city. And the grace of God for Jesus Christ will be yours. It'll change your life. And one of the things we need to remember as converted people is that we're to be models in the sense of that. Not models of people who have it all together, but models of people who are continually dying to self and turning to Jesus. And trusting in all that Jesus has accomplished. And let the realities of grace and the power of grace be at work in our life so that we're humble. We're, 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 there's a peaceableness about it, us. There's a joy. There's a pursuing holiness that's, that's manifest. 
I think we need to we need to just prayerfully before the Lord ask how is this really working in your life? I just want to touch on one sore spot. Um, some of some of you live in near constant conflict, and I'm thinking particularly in your marriage, and maybe no one else knows about it. But your home is marked by anger, discord, strife, tension. Friends, we need to just remember that a Christian marriage without peace is a contradiction in terms. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, God doesn't guarantee us all easy marriages. He doesn't guarantee us blissful marriages. We're not guaranteed that. Read John Piper's uh, talk about his marriage with his wife, Noel, and, and the, the battles that have been involved and the, the, the hardships that they've faced. That's just, that's just real. What I'm talking specifically about is relationships where the peace of Christ simply isn't functioning. And, and this word, you see, has to come home to how we live with our wife and how we live with our husband, how we live with our, with our friends and in community. And, and let me just give you a couple things as we wrap up. The, the way that we're going to move forward in these things is let the peace of God become a reality, first of all, in your own heart and your own life. And that happens through confessing your own sin, taking the log out of your own eye. It happens through humility. It happens through prayer. It happens through trust in Jesus Christ. If you are in a contentious marriage... Don't settle that that's normal. Don't just look for the the door out. Strive for peace. Through humility and confession. When you're on your knees before the Lord, let let the lack of peace in your marriage break your heart and, and let that be visible and evident that this isn't about your happiness ultimately. It's not about your spouse's happiness either. It's, it's about the glory of Jesus. If we can't do this, as a Christian couple, we can't do this before a crucified Savior. We can't live this way. The Bible says the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus as you cast your cares on him. Do you believe that Jesus is sufficient to give you peace in the middle of a hard marriage? Then seek that peace. Secondly, the Bible says, be at peace with all men as much as you are able. There are circumstances where peace, we, we do as much as we are able, and, and then that's, that's all we can do. There are, there are people who are contentious and full of strife, and Proverbs talks about that. And so we're to, we're to strive for peace as much as we're able, and then trusting in the Lord. But let me also say this, in the body of Christ, you see, if there's unrepentant sin in the marriage, that's called, if there's just anger, unrepentant anger, unrepentant sexual sin, unrepentant gossip, unrepentant lying, unrepentant whatever, the, the body has a responsibility together, you see, to lovingly engage in that. And so if you're in a marriage and that's taking place, it's not unloving for you to come and talk to an elder. It's loving for you to say, my wife, my husband, I fear is caught in unrepentant sin, and it's bringing all sorts of strife into our home. And I, I know my own heart, and I see my own sin, and I grieve it, but this is what's taking place. It's not unloving. 
It's, it is essentially loving to, to ask an elder. And let me also say this. If, if the elders of Harvest Church fail to engage in that, you have the right to go to the presbytery and hold us accountable for our failure. We're, we're part of a church that takes seriously unrepentant, unrepentant sin. Because, you see, it's, not, it's just not permissible that you and I take on ourselves the name of Christ and then give ourselves a free pass. And we're not allowed to give each other a free pass either. And I'm not talking about people who, normal Christians who are struggling with normal sin and they hate it, they hate their anger and they hate their lust and they hate the lying and they hate the coveting or whatever it is that's bringing dissension and they grieve it and they confess it and they, they're, 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 they're taking accountability or asking for accountability, seeking it out and seeking to grow. That's normal Christianity. Unrepentant sin must be addressed. And the reason, friends, is because there's such a great deal at stake. You can be lost forever right here at Harvest Church. You can go to hell from Harvest Church. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See the Lord. And the heart, you see, the heart of that principle of holiness, friends, is humility. It's the ability to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, it was sin, I need to be forgiven. I need Christ to forgive me. I need you to forgive me. I want help. That's the heart of the principle of holiness. And without that, there's not going to be growth. If you've never said to your husband or your wife, I've sinned against the Lord and I've sinned against you and I'm deeply sorry and I ask you to forgive me. You see, then how can grace work in that marriage? There's no place for it. Let me close this morning with a story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. It's about blind Bartimaeus. Remember Mark 10, Jesus is walking through the city of Jericho and this, this crazy man and this, this beggar starts screaming out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Just screaming at the top of his lungs and his friends are telling him to shut up and people in the crowd are, are, are telling him to be quiet and he won't, he won't be quiet. And finally, Jesus just says, have him come and, and so he comes to Jesus and it, do you remember what Jesus said to him? What do you want me to do for you? Which is a crazy question. Everybody would know the answer to that. He's blind. He's a beggar. But Jesus asked Bartimaeus to name the sin, to name the need. That's what he does. Name the need. And in naming the need in front of Jesus Christ to express, you see, the, the confidence that Jesus can fix it. What do you want me to do for you? And, Bar and blind Bartimaeus, blind all of his life, in a culture, civilization, and a time where no one gets healed from blindness, turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to see. I want to see. Friend, what do you want Jesus to do? With that need, sense of that desperation, and with that faith in Jesus Christ, what do you need Jesus to do for you. He will hear. He will answer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are, we are people who we need your word. We need, Lord, to be reminded of all the grace that surrounds us and, and the tragedy that it would be for us to go lost in the midst of all this grace. We are people who sin. 
We sin with our eyes. We sin with our mouth and our hands and our feet. We sin with our sexual organs. We sin in our attitudes. We sin, Lord, in ways that are offensive and grievous and wicked, and we have no excuse. And Father, I thank you that your grace gives us the ability to humble ourselves and to confess our sin. I thank you, Lord, that no matter what the nice clothes say on the outside, on the inside, every person here is is desperately in need of Jesus. And we are utterly lost without him. And Lord, we want to be then people who live by faith and who walk in grace. I pray, Lord, particularly this morning for marriages that are being devastated by sin. And Lord, I pray that you would give your people the ability to turn away from the sin of their spouse and begin by looking at their own heart before Christ and having a passion for holiness and the humility to confess their own sin. That there would be a God-honoring humility and brokenness and honesty so that the grace can flow in and husbands and wives can confess their sin to each other and begin to walk together as allies in grace. Father, we, all of us, need to receive again this reminder to strive for peace, to strive for holiness, to love each other well, to not turn a blind eye to sin, ours ours or others, to be gracious, but Lord, if there's unrepentance, then to address. We want to do this in a way, Lord, that bears fruit for the glory of God and that brings life and health and peace into, into lame feet and weak parts in our lives and in the life of the body. Jesus, thank you that we can, we can let you know what we need and what we want you to do. Lord, we want to be holy. We want to be humble. We want to be happy in God. We want to bear fruit. And we can't do any of it on ourselves. But we come to you, Lord Jesus, in the confidence that you are able and willing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.